Plant the Rain and Grow Abundance. Brad Lancaster's award-winning book series, Rainwater Harvesting for Drylands and Beyond, will show you how. His books are the go-to guides for conceptualizing, designing, and implementing water harvesting systems for your home, landscape, and community. Their grounding and dynamically integrated systems will teach you new ways of seeing and maximizing your site's potential. By harvesting and enhancing free on-site resources from water to sun, wind, shade, soil fertility, and beyond. Highly illustrated and full of case studies and stories of people successfully welcoming rain and more into their lives and landscapes, these books invite, inspire, and guide you to do the same. More info at harvestingrainwater.com. A few quick updates as we get started. David Bilbrey recently joined me as an ongoing co-host. As part of this work with the podcast, he'll be traveling to San Francisco, May 1st through the 4th, 2018, to attend Regen 18 and connect with speakers dedicated to his interests, weaving together business with the world we want to see. Among the speakers who will be there is Carol Sanford, a past guest of the show. Will you be going to Regen 18? If so, email David, david at thepermaculturepodcast.com, and let him know. Would you like to go? There's a link in the show notes to a 30% discount for podcast listeners. The spring fundraiser is still in effect through April 20th, 2018. Find out more about this, as well as what you can receive for donating, at thepermaculturepodcast.com spring. While you're there, be sure to sign up for the Permaculture Podcast newsletter by entering your email address on the sidebar of the website. As a thank you, you'll receive an email with a list of books I think every permaculture practitioner should read to expand your understanding of the land, the wild, and our communities. This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann. My guest today is Philip Ackerman Leist, professor at Green Mountain College and author of A Precautionary Tale, How One Small Town Banned Pesticides, Preserved Its Food Heritage, and Inspired a Movement. I've wanted to interview Philip for a number of years, ever since I first heard him in an NPR piece about Green Mountain College. And I like the way that he spoke about food and food issues. I feel fortunate. The way he speaks is the way that he writes. So if you enjoy this conversation, I'm sure that you'll enjoy his book. During this interview, Philip and I, of course, talk about his biography and background, how he came to farming Green Mountain College and to write a precautionary tale, and then move into the story of malts, a farming community in northern Italy, and what they've done to push back against the ingress of modern industrial agriculture. And throughout, you'll hear suggestions for anyone who would like to get involved in local, state, or national political actions. Enjoy this conversation with Philip, and I'll join you again afterward. Then, Philip, can you give us a bit of your biography and background, and then we can talk about your work writing A Precautionary Tale? Sure. Uh, well, I'm someone who has always been interested in farming, and uh, but also someone who was told for many years that farming necessarily wasn't the way to go. So as a result, I pursued a philosophy degree in college, and said I was working with my grandparents on their farm at various points in time during that period. But, you know, I was looking for something a bit different and was fortunate enough to end up in the Alps, the Italian Alps, the South Tyrol region in the 1980s. And it was a place that I kept going back to and eventually in the early 90s ended up farming there for about three years. But I'm also someone who's always struggled with and of finding his place within academia and uh, struggled in, in that realm. You know, went to several different graduate programs trying to 
to find my place, if you will, and finally ended up with a degree in conservation biology, which really gave me the chance to explore this nexus between you know, the natural world and the human world and what we do when we perform this act that we call farming or agriculture. And so I've been very fortunate over the years to, to farm in the sandhills of North Carolina and then also in the Alps and now in Vermont, uh, where my wife and I, for the last 20 years, we've had an off-grid homestead here in Vermont, and we raise American Milking Devon cattle, uh, 100% grass-fed. And so trying to find ways to pass on the knowledge I've been lucky enough to, to get uh, to my students and also to my kids, at least when they're interested and willing. The ongoing struggles as a parent. Yeah, in the digital age. <laughs> so what are we paying more attention to? What's on the screen or what's outside the window? What you mentioned there reminds me of my own life about, you know, farming wasn't necessarily the way to go. I come from a farming family that goes back many generations, but it kind of stopped with me when my father chose not to pursue that path because he didn't want that life for me after what he went through with his father and himself growing up. So it's interesting that you've had this cycle that kind of brought you back around to do this kind of work. Right. You know, it, it's interesting. I mean, you know, one thing that's been a very positive change in the, the last 20 years, I think, Scott, is the fact that, you know, when I got into this, uh, that is sustainable agriculture and higher education, you know, the, the word anti-intellectual was actually used at various times to describe farming and trying to bring farming into the college curriculum. And it's something I've always pushed back against. You know, it, it doesn't really make sense to me that, that that was ever the case. But the beauty of what's happened over the last two decades is that, you know, higher education institutions like Green Mountain College, where I am, have, have really begun to embrace it. And not only that, but, you know, they've done it in a way that's different from the land grant institutions. So that, you know, places like Green Mountain College that have a liberal arts background, you know, suddenly we're seeing that it's such a, a rich context, you know, to start to unearth. And, and that's one of the beauties of it for me now. And that, that's one of the fun things about being at a place that's an interdisciplinary environmental liberal arts college is, you know, we really get to look at farming with a lot of different lenses. And we start to see that it's kaleidoscopic in nature. And it's interesting to hear anti-intellectual because of some of the conversations I've had over the years with extension agents and others, some both on the air for the show and off, is just how much skill and knowledge is required to really farm between your planting schedule and planning that out, as well as knowing when something is going to be ripe, how to bring somebody in for a business, how to hire the right folks, how interdisciplinary the act of farming really is. Yeah, you know, it's it's an odd thing, you know, and as to, you know, I wonder a lot of times, what is it that happened over the course of time that started to change it? And, you know, I, I think we used not just higher education, but education in general as a way of getting people off the farm. And, you know, now we're starting to realize that that was a, a big mistake. And so now we're beginning to embed, I, I think, uh, the curricula of a lot of places like Green Mountain College really embed that with bringing those skills back, you know, and I confess it's a little odd <laughs> at the higher education level to have to teach some of the skills that were lessons that were quickly won on the farm for most 10-year-olds in a lot of cases. You know, really, and I, I find students, they, they yearn for that. They feel like they really missed out on something very important in their youth and really picking up these skills of observation, but also hands-on education. And so we're doing it again. We're doing it in a different way. And I like to think that at least we're expediting that process 
especially in places like Green Mountain College that have college farms on our campus. We're really lucky to be able to, to have that resource. And then I understand from your background when you were farming in the Sandhills with your grandparents that your grandfather brought some of that kind of academic research-based farming onto the ground. So you had some experience with that early on. Do I follow that correctly? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. My grandfather was you know, an interesting history in that he grew up in South Carolina on a farm that it was a sharecropper's farm, and you know his family had very, very little money, and in part that was attributed to the boll weevil. And you know the boll weevil was the, you know evil incarnate <laughs> down south in a lot of those farms. And you know so my grandfather really wanted to find a way to help farmers be able to make a living off the land, and so he ended up getting into the fruit industry and building out, especially the peach industry in the southeast. But then also working on um, muscadines, uh, various other grape varieties, and strawberries, apples. So he was really interested in using the land grant institution uh, that was North Carolina State there um, in a way to give farmers an opportunity to really be able to make a living and not be devastated in the same way that he saw his family devastated. But, you know, as a result of that, part of what he ended up doing was developing a lot of the pesticide programs for the Southeast. You know, again, I think with the best intentions of trying to eliminate pests like the boll weevil. And in his case, he was working more on fungal diseases and some on insects, but trying to find a better way forward. And I think it's just over the decades we've realized that pesticides aren't the path forward. But he was also working on plant breeding. And ultimately, I think he would have been much happier if plant breeding sufficed in and of itself to solve a lot of these problems. But it's complicated. The fruit industry is not a simple one, as you well know. And I also think about how the knowledge that we have today is built on the knowledge before us. And depending on the technological and cultural direction of a particular era or period, that that's what provides us with the base on which we work from. And that in just my own lifetime, getting to see the way that we've moved from just regular kind of commercial or as some would call it chemical agriculture to be having these conversations about different ways that we can do things like integrated pest management or plant breeding or selecting for all these different rare or heritage varieties that most folks wouldn't have had access to just a few decades ago. Yeah, you know, when you look at what we have at our disposal now, just in terms of scientific knowledge, and and some of that scientific knowledge has come from the development of pesticides, certainly looking at entomology, looking at insect life cycles, as well as those various diseases. It's been really interesting to kind of see the development of all of that. But when we take all of these different tools, you know, we've, we've just got an incredible opportunity to advance things forward in terms of organic agriculture. And I do think the fruit industry is one of the most challenging for farmers to go organic. But when we look at all the possibilities, we've got the best of what history had to offer. And we have so much online that we can find out how farmers were doing things previously. And then we've got all the modern research. And so, you know, there's just no excuse in my mind for not being able to move forwards, you know, to a kind of agriculture that is much more benevolent in the way that we treat the planet and and ultimately ourselves and also our, our livestock and our communities. And is it that synergy of experiences with your grandparents, your role in academia, and then your own work farming in Italy that brings you to this place where you're using your experiences at Green Mountain College to teach these new tools and techniques to the next generation? 
Yeah, you know, it was really, I, I think in some ways it was the contrast of the kind of agriculture that I saw growing up down south in North Carolina with what I discovered in the Alps. You know, so I I was seeing, I mean, even at my, my college there in North Carolina, St. Andrews College uh, down in Laurenburg, you know, it was a place where I was seeing cotton fields, soybean fields, and these other kinds of agriculture, and I just didn't really have an affinity for me. And so when I went to the Alps for the first time as an exchange student to Brunenburg Castle in the South Tyrol, that was in 1983, all of a sudden this landscape opened up for me. And, and it was a landscape of the mind as much as it was of the Alpine environment. But suddenly I was seeing these small diversified farms that had maintained themselves somehow for 20, 30, you know, even more generations on these steep slopes. And so to see the diversity that they had there, you know, to really understand the skills that they had in order to survive in those environments, you know, it just boggled my mind. So that was the place where all of a sudden these vistas opened up for me, not just from being on top of amazing mountains, but also you know, the intellectual landscape really opened up and I started to see the possibilities. And I was also fortunate enough to be living at Brunenberg Castle, which was a place where you know, the family of American poet Ezra Pound had lived. So there was all this literature there. There was an agricultural museum that was really extraordinary. And so suddenly I saw that it did make sense to come at agriculture, not from the land-grant institution perspective that I was familiar with by way of my grandfather, but really to come at it from a multitude of disciplines and to plumb the depths of history and culture and you know see how we could reassemble this thing called agriculture in a context that made sense. So I was just incredibly fortunate to land at Green Mountain College at the point in time when the college was taking on an environmental liberal arts approach to education. And what fits better there than agriculture, especially sustainable agriculture. And it's an interesting kind of juxtaposition for me when in your book, you're talking about being at the castle and on the tractor, you're covered in like this heavy protective equipment if I remember, was it grapes that you were spraying? Right. There was a vineyard there where we made the wine for the castle and also some for sale for the museum. And at that time, had the farmers in and around that area begun converting to organic agriculture? Or was this still something that was in transition? Well, <laughs> that's a great question. They were trying and they were failing you know, in many ways, unfortunately. I there were farmers who were trying to raise the traditional grapes that had been raised in that region for quite some time. And unfortunately, and so this was in the early 90s, you know, as we were spraying these pesticides, most of them were fungicides at that point in time. We didn't have so much insect pressure. But as we were spraying against the fungal diseases, it was a real challenge. And there were some farmers like me who didn't want to don the respirators and the, you know, the rubber suits and spend all of their time in the summer going out in spring once every 7, 10, 14 days. And so they were, they were trying to deal with these fungal diseases from an organic perspective. And whenever I, I went to these other farms to take a look, things weren't going very well. So there was a need to transition and to change. But it's been really amazing the last couple of years as we've looked more at fungal-resistant grapes so now there are possibilities. There are these grape varieties that are fungal resistant that just do an incredible job. So, you know, we've been able to kind of get past that scenario in which pesticides were, were almost required. So that's tremendously exciting to me and gives me a sense of hope and optimism. And when you were there, 
spraying the grapes in the vineyard. That was about 25 years ago. When did you kind of, if you will, see the light and make this transition more towards organic and other forms of agriculture? It's a good question. And, you know, and I, I never liked pesticides. I, you know, I'd been around the pesticides on my grandparents' farm in our peach orchard. And, and also there was a vineyard there as well. And was never really comfortable with that whole scene, you know, and I, honestly, you know, there's, there's a little bit of machismo that goes along with pesticides, I think, in a lot of cases. And, you know, when you're, you're out there working, it didn't matter whether it was in Italy or out, you know, in the orchard, my grandparents, there's this thing that we're somehow immune, particularly as there's the males working and, you know, you're not supposed to protect yourself or worry, you know, you don't want to be seen as the ninny out there in the orchard or the vineyard. So I I never liked it. Uh, talked to my grandfather about not liking it very much. But I also, you know, when I was in Italy and decided that it was it was worth certainly being there, working in the vineyards, and at least the pesticides we were using were fairly low toxicity in comparison to some others. But you know, honestly, it was the after three summers being in this rubber suit and respirator. I decided I couldn't do it anymore, but there was one day in particular that I write about in the book in which I came back with a partial tank of um, the fungicides still in the tank. And it's just, it's really, really hard to regulate how much of a pesticide mixture to create, you know, and this is in, in liters. And so the tank, I believe, was 300 liter tank. And I'd have to make up this mixture and you'd try to figure out how much was going to be the right amount to spray on the vineyards. And I came back and I had something around a, a quarter or a fifth of a tank left. And I had this decision point where it was, do I go back and spray excess on the rest of the vineyard? Or do I actually just, I open up the tank and, and let this drain out? And, you know, neither one of those was a good decision. And, and that was the time when I just said, I can't do this anymore. When you're faced with two bad decisions, then something's got to change. And that, that's when I decided it was my last summer doing that. Began you down this road of ways that we can practice regenerative and restorative agriculture? Exactly. And, you know, and honestly, at that point, not having a lot of good answers. I wasn't seeing much in the South at that point in time in terms of organic, um, certainly not regenerative agriculture. There were just a couple of models out there, not very many. I wasn't seeing a whole lot of it in Italy at that point in time. But, you know, when I got back to the U.S. in the mid-90s, there were things that were bubbling up and beginning to get really exciting. And just being in Vermont, you know, really was in incredible for me because there was a renaissance happening in Vermont in terms of organic agriculture. And suddenly there were mentors to be found everywhere. It didn't matter whether I was looking for organic agriculture with livestock, with fruits or with vegetables. Vermont was just such a, a hotbed of a green laboratory, if you will. I was really lucky to land here. And with that timing, I'm glad to hear that you had those experiences then, because being here in central Pennsylvania for a number of years and being involved in sustainable agriculture and on-farm education and other things, we've only started really to have a lot of these conversations and see how to transition our larger long-term family farms in probably the last three or four years and it's just finally beginning to connect mentors and others with folks so that they can take this large scale embedded existing infrastructure and begin to move it in another direction. It's so exciting now. And, you know, that's why I feel like there's there's not much excuse for not going organic, you know, be it certified or not at this point in time, because we 
you know, all around the country now, we do have the mentors who are out there and we do have the networks. And certainly by way of the internet, we have so much information at our disposal. And it's not to say that it's always simple, you know, but I do think when you look at vegetable farming, it's probably that's one of the areas in which it's easiest to go this route. Livestock, you know, and I've got grass-fed beef at our home. We're not organic certified, but generally use organic practices, although in our case, finding organic hay you know, is a bit of a problem. But organic livestock, that management, it's certainly not impossible and I think very viable. The fruit industry is one place, whenever you've got perennials, I think it does become more challenging when you put those perennials in monocultural environments. I understand and appreciate why folks haven't made the transition, but I think we have to find ways to, to help them along and encourage them to do that by way of these mentors. They have to have the successes there, not the polemic. You know, they've got to have the people who are actually doing it. And as we're working on those transitions here in the United States, as the full title of your book is A Precautionary Tale, How One Small Town Banned Pesticides, Preserved Its Food Heritage, and Inspired a Movement, I was wondering, how did you hear about the story of malts and what they were doing? Did that come from your continuing relationship with the people there and returning over the years? Or was it something that was passed on to you that kind of inspired this book? It was um, really kind of a funny coincidence because almost every year I lead a group uh, back to um, the South Tyrol region to look at, I I, I teach a graduate course called um, Turning Traditions into Markets. And so I love taking students back to this area to look at how a culture with so many thousands of years of agricultural heritage is now finding ways to use these traditions and turn them into marketplace opportunities. So I was taking a group of graduate students back. Uh, We always go and stay at Brunnenberg Castle when we're there. And I was at breakfast one morning, I guess about two days before the group was, the rest of the group was arriving and talking to my friend Brigitte there. And she said, you know, down in Maltz, uh, you know, which was about an hour and 15 minutes from Brunnenberg, you know, up in Maltz, they're actually having a referendum now to ban all pesticides. And I was like, what? You've got to be kidding me. Because, you know, here I was at, at Brunnenberg, which is at the, the lowest, uh, kind of the lower part of the Finchgau Valley. And when you go up into the Finchgau Valley, uh, which is a place that I took students for years and years, gradually you lose the apples and the grapes and you start to get more into a diversified agricultural environment. And so Maltz was one of the places where I've always taken students and, and usually done hiking tours of three, four, five, six days throughout that region. And it was also a place for me that was a respite from all the monocultures that, that were there around the castle itself. So when I heard that there was actually this uh, referendum, I just I couldn't believe it. So I changed our schedule and we drove up to Maltz a couple of days later and started interviewing people there in the town. And you know, suddenly this whole new concept opened up for me that you know not only could we do organic agriculture by what was happening on the farm, But there was also a policy element um, that just was pretty amazing to me that a town could actually think about banning all pesticides. With that referendum to ban pesticides, what was the impetus to do that? What was the impacts that were occurring to the farmers on the ground as a result of pesticides? Yeah, so the the farmers in Maltz is still practicing, in many cases, a small diversified agriculture. Their parcels are fairly small, uh, the parcels that the farms have. And so those farmers uh, were finding that uh, thanks to climate change and then also 
some of the, the research that was going on with, with apples and other fruits, they were finding that the apples were making their way up the valley, and they were also extremely profitable. So kind of driven by the twin engines of profits and then also climate change, apples were beginning to make their way up the valley. And so the farmers who were working on organic agriculture, both in the dairy sector, but also with vegetables, and there was even a grain renaissance that was happening, suddenly they could see that they were really going to be challenged by pesticide drift. And it was one case in particular, and that was of Gunter Wallnerfer, who's just this really amazing organic farmer who transitioned his family's conventional dairy farm to organic because he knew that was the one way they could make it work economically and keep the farm. And then all of a sudden he had apples appear on several sides of his hay fields. And he knew, and that was in 2010, he knew that he was probably in trouble. And sure enough, 2011, he had to have his hay tested and there were pesticide residues on almost all of the hay samples that he took that year. So he was the one who really was the canary in the coal mine, unfortunately for him. And it's one of the interesting side effects of having all of these parcels that are, as I understand, most farmers will have like one or two acres here, one or two acres there. Maybe outside the village, they'll have five or ten that are contiguous. So mm -hmm. a farmer might be farming dozens or even hundreds of acres, but they're kind of divided around the village, allowing other farmers to rest right beside them. Right. And so it's, it is those small parcel sizes that, that that really did create the issues in many ways, because there's just no way that you can have a buffer zone, you know, against pesticide drift uh, when you've got a field that's adjacent and then suddenly filled with apples. And at that point in time, early on, there was only a three meter buffer that was required. And as I recall, that's from the base of the tree itself outward. And so it's just inevitable there's going to be pesticide drift. And so that's what the farmers were really worried about. And suddenly organic dairy was no longer going to be a possibility. These grains that they were bringing, the heritage grains they were bringing back, suddenly those were certainly going to be impacted by pesticide drift. So all the hopes that they'd had for the future, which were based on the traditions of the past, suddenly were, were totally endangered. And I think about here in the United States, by being able to have farms that are 50, 100, thousands of acres, that taking some of that out of production to put in buffers, windbreaks and other things to prevent that kind of a drift isn't the same kind of issue as with these smaller parcels. But I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about some of the things that the farmers tried before they moved this referendum. I remember you writing about in the book, one of the families put in like a technological solution, like an air fence or something like that as a way to mm -hmm. kind of buffer things and then also looking to like grow under protection and the way that that caused additional problems. Could you speak a little bit about those? Sure. Yeah. Midway up the Finchgau Valley. So between where I was living, Brunenberg Castle and Maltz, there was a really interesting family, the Gluterer family, who decided that they wanted to build an organic herb business. And they did that, and again, on one of these smaller parcels, they began to build out an organic herb business, uh, which you know very quickly was successful. And <laughs> the only problem was that apples started moving in from all directions, and they suddenly found themselves totally surrounded by apple orchards, and therefore by pesticide drift. And so they were trying to figure out how they could counter that, because obviously if there were any pesticide residues on their organic herbs, then they wouldn't be for sale. There was nothing that they could actually do to counter that. So they, they tried growing hedges. Uh, that wasn't enough. 
Then they try, as, as you allude to, actually a, a water wall, they called it. So it was a curtain of water that shot up 10 meters. And whenever someone was spraying, they tried to have this water wall go up around them on all sides so that it would actually catch the pesticide drift. That was ineffective and didn't work. And so they ended up deciding that either they had to move or they had to cover their entire business with high tunnels, with these greenhouses. So they ended up spending what was at the time over $200,000 in order to cover their entire herb farm, which is just crazy when you, <laughs> when you look at what they had to do. And you know their hope is that with the example of malts and others, that perhaps there'll be some sanity that comes back into the picture and that in another five or 10 years, maybe they'll be able to take down those high tunnels. Because as they said, it's an act of misery working in those high tunnels <laughs> a lot of, during a lot of the summer. So it's not what they wanted, but it's really, it's the compromise they had to make to stay on their farm. And I think of conversations with farmers here in the United States about how low their profit margins are some years and the impact of having to install that kind of equipment or to have to bring in that much coverage, especially for just trying to make it to the next growing season and having to respond rapidly to that, the kind of strain that that can put on a farm and whether or not you might even be making the decision whether or not to sell the land or continue farming. Right. You know, and I, I just, I've got a tremendous amount of respect for the gluters who they built this business. They actually were organic apple growers themselves before they decided to go this route. But they, in the end, they decided to stand their ground and that they could be folks who helped engender the change. Although, you know, it's not been the easiest path for them. Frankly, it's, it's been pretty brutal because they sort of became the lightning rod <laughs> for catching a, a lot of the flack that's happening in the area because, you know, they were doing something that was totally counter to what the rest of the culture was doing and opposing an economic engine of the valley. And from their early opposition and trying to preserve and save what it was that they were doing, how do these examples lead to the town working to ban pesticides? You know, so folks were watching. I mean, it's not as if you know, the apples moving up the valley and toward malts was something that happened overnight. Although it feels like it, you know, when I go back and I, I hike in that area and I look down any year I go, there are always more apples that are appearing and working their way up the valley floor. So people could see it coming. I mean, they could also smell it coming. I and mean, you can smell these pesticides when they're being sprayed as well. So it was no secret. And people started in malts talking about what can we do because They'd elected a, a new mayor just before all of this began to unfold, unravel. And that new mayor really was, in many ways, he was a beacon of the promises that they, they saw in front of them, you know, because it, they all started to have this idea that they could be a sustainable community in a way that we don't always think about, you know, here in the States. Uh, they started working on providing their own energy by way of the different water resources that they had. They started to think about transportation and putting in a train that became an electric train that was designed by the Swiss, also a, um, a rideshare program. They were looking at these agricultural traditions and how they could turn those into profit centers for the community. They had the first organic hotel in the region, which is something we don't see here in the U.S. much at all. So they, they had these beacons of promise, and suddenly they were being threatened. So they started having discussions, open forums in which they started discussing, you know, what does the future of our community look like? 
And those discussions gradually evolved also into bringing in different toxicologists, different lawyers, wildlife biologists to talk about, you know, what could happen if they took what they began to see as the wrong path forward. And it's interesting to hear having these public forums to bring everybody together. I think about going to some of my local township meetings and it'll be, you know, your your board and maybe two or three people from the community. And I'm wondering, was there something cultural occurring within the valley that got so many people involved to be stakeholders in bringing about this change? You know, I, I think they did a really smart job in putting forward the vision of what they had as community resources. You know, so in many ways, the landscape that they had maintained for so many generations, that was the common commodity, the, the common treasure that they had. And they started to see that all of that could be lost because it had been lost in other communities further down in the valley. And they really saw themselves as the last bastion of small, diversified, somewhat organic agriculture in the region. And that if they didn't find ways to pull together, then that would be lost and they would be like everywhere else in the South Tyrol. And that's not what they wanted. There are folks there in the region who say that the people in this particular part of the valley have always been the querdankers, the people who think outside of the box, that they're, they're not like other South Tyrolians. You know, whether that's true or not, they had a very special attachment to their landscape and didn't want to see all of that lost and see the heritage go down the drain. How did they take this desire to save their community and turn it into action? It's funny because even though people really did cherish uh, what they had there, the issue of pesticides and talking bad in any way about apples or grapes or any other fruits in the South Tyrol, that's something that you just don't do. And people weren't really comfortable tackling the apple industry or the fruit industry. But these quiet conversations started to build and build. So one of the environmental groups in the area decided that they would hire a polling firm to actually to do a telephone survey to get a sense of how many people saw the potential for a pesticide-free future. So that was one of the first things that was really important was just getting a sense of how many in the, the area of malts, how many citizens there would possibly take a stand. And they were astonished to find out that it was almost 80% of the people were really concerned about the, the movement in of apples and the pesticides that accompanied them. So that was a really important step for them was to actually you know, have that, that come forward, that data. And there was a, a lot of discussion. There was a lot of kind of guerrilla art activism that started to build and generate. And that in and of itself was really important, too, because by making light of something, and they, they did this in some really interesting ways, but by making light of it, then suddenly you can start to see the, the seriousness of the threat in a way. So they actually they started to think of what they had there as paradise in contrast to the apple. So they started playing off of this notion of Adam, Eve, the apple, paradise, and being kicked out of the garden. And so there was a group that was formed, Adam and Epfel. Epfel is the dialect word for apple. So they formed this group, Adam and Epfel, and started placing serpents, uh, brightly painted serpents throughout the villages and places, sort of to signify what might come if they weren't careful. So people started to use a lot of different techniques in order to raise the salience of the issues there. So then as you have this kind of like guerrilla theater bringing attention to this and the information about how many people were interested in making these 
steps towards preservation of what was occurring. What were kind of the next steps then for the mayor and the farmers and the others to begin crafting what was necessary for this referendum when it came to policy and community law? The mayor, Ulrich Weit, just a really interesting guy, he'd spent about 14 years working in Switzerland. And again, Maltz is situated right at the convergence of Switzerland, Austria, and Italy. And so Ulrich, or Uli as he's known there in the town, had spent about 14 years uh, working in Switzerland and doing a lot of international work while he was there. And, you know, the Swiss have a long history in direct democracy. And so I, by virtue of having this time in Switzerland, Uli had picked up a lot of the ideas about direct democracy and how you can make that work. One of the things that he did after he found out what had happened to Gunther Wallner for the organic dairy farmer, one of the things that he did was to work with the town council to make any referendum binding. And what that meant in this particular case for Maltz was the town council decided that if there was a public referendum that was approved, the town council had to take it up. It didn't tell them how they had to respond, but they did have to actually take it up and deal with it. And so that was a change that Ulrich made uh, with the town council. You know, it was fairly quiet. It seemed probably fairly innocuous to many people at that point in time, but it was a critical move. And then at the same time, in Italy and the EU, if a mayor sees that his or her community is threatened, that the health of the humans there is threatened in any way, then the mayor can actually take action that supersedes national or EU law at that point. And so that was also something that was very important. And it was really the women in the town in many ways that picked up on this concept. They were very savvy and began to look at this notion of, you know, how do you actually put this idea of protecting the health of the community out there? So it, there was a, a, a really critical moment in the whole story where uh, Martina Hellriegel uh, went to the friseur, to the hair salon, where Beatrice Ross was there. And um, they had a conversation. They said, you know, we know that 80% of the people now roughly are worried about pesticides. But no one's really talking about it. And the media is not picking it up. The politicians other than Ulrich aren't responding to it. So what do we do? And so Martina said, Beatrice, if you'll go around and, and help get people on board, I'll write a letter to the editor. And as she wrote it, she crafted it in a very smart way and put it as a request to the mayor to protect the health of the community. And so then uh, within just a couple of days, there was a letter to the editor uh, that people sent in. And there were about 70 different letters to the editor that went in and were published asking for the mayor to take care of the town and the health of the community. And that really was a tipping point for this whole exercise. And that's a really different direction than what we wind up with very often in the United States, I think from the context that I'm in, where it's very much a top down and there are lots of laws being passed that say that local communities can't supersede state or federal law. Exactly. And that's one of the things that I think we're not aware enough uh, of here in the United States. There are only seven states in the United States, Vermont being one of them, in which communities can actually supersede some state and federal laws. And, you know, that's been crafted very carefully by ALEC, the American Legislative Executive Council. It's no accident that that's where we are right now. Uh, they've realized that it's much easier to control things at the state level 
than it is at the federal level. So it's one of the things we really need to push back on. And I think about how much we have conversations at the national level about states' rights and how individual communities should be able to set their path and where they're going and the way that kind of builds up in the rhetoric. But when we look at the way that the actions are actually being taken, it's to remove more and more of those rights and freedoms. Exactly. And I think that's one of the beauties of the story about malts. It's it's not just a story about pesticides. Obviously, that's the impetus. But it's also a story about direct democracy and how critical that is and, and how communities do need to care for themselves and, and watch out for themselves. And I don't mean in, you know, that, that, that can go the other direction, too. I mean, I grew up down south. You know, the Ku Klux Klan was still big in my community. So, you know, local control can go the wrong way. I've seen that growing up, but local control is just so critical when we're looking at pesticide issues and also other chemical contamination. You know, this thing of toxic trespass is something that we've got to deal with and we've got to take it on politically and at the local level is the way to start in my view. And I very much agree. And I'd like to speak a little bit more about that here in a moment, but returning back to that letter to the editor, once that was there, was that kind of then the public call and request that allowed the mayor to take advantage of what he had learned in his work in international policy and about protecting the local community, that he could take that then to the rest of the community and create and pass this referendum? Exactly. So the, this idea of the referendum started to really bubble up and, and become pretty frothy at that point in time. And so the mayor and others were beginning to think about how they might move forward. And so there was one other move that the women of the town made that was really critical that happened right after the letter to the editor. These women got together and they said, you know, the men have been dealing with this issue for a while and they, they've had their chance basically to get the media interested and get the politicians on board and it hasn't happened. So the letter to the editor, you know, that was an important piece, but it's got to be more dramatic to get them to pay attention and so being a, a town that has a lot of tourists and a lot of inns, there also <laughs> there were a, a lot of extra old sheets around. So the, the women banded together and they decided, first of all, that they would form an organization informally called Holovint. And in dialect, that meant stop right there. Don't make another move. And so they formed this organization called Holovint. And then they put the word out that they wanted to turn bedsheets into banners. And so... <laughs> They, they got these stencils, and they did this very beautifully. I mean, the, the graphics of the photos that you see uh, you know, are really interesting. But they created these banners that called for a pesticide-free malts, a pesticide-free town. And it, it was kind of surreptitious. You know, it was done under the cover of darkness in many ways. Uh, they were stenciling these bedsheets, and then there was one night in the summer in which all of a sudden these sheets were all hung up under the cover of darkness, and the next morning, as, as dawn broke, you know, there were these banners that were spread throughout the town calling for a pesticide-free future. And that was a really critical piece because all of a sudden, you know, the media had to pay attention, the politicians had to pay attention, and it gave the mayor even more support to say, we need to do something, and we need to do something political. And the piece there that, that happened to Scott that was so important, the women of Holovint decided that they didn't want to create a negative campaign. They didn't want to create a ban, per se. They didn't want to use the words no, not, never. Instead, they wanted to use positive language. And that's why instead of a ban on pesticides, they shifted the language to a pesticide-free community. 
And that, that was a really important move for them. And that meant that it wasn't as polarized a discussion in the town as was an outright ban at that point in time. And there's a line that you have in the book, it's hard to say no to yes. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's, it's not to say that it was an easy discussion, you know, with farmers of different perspectives, but they, the women were very savvy in realizing that they needed to find a way to bring people together to see the positives of the future and not to see some, see this as a draconian regulation that was going to impede people and really hurt farmers economically. To the contrary, they started to say more and more, organic is the future of our town. And also with ecotourism being such a big part of what we do, we can't have this contradiction, pitching ourselves as an ecotourism destination, and then all of a sudden pesticides being sprayed alongside the bike paths and the hiking areas. And one thing that comes to mind is you're saying, as the women are hanging out the banners throughout the village, is how large is the town and what's the population there that had to kind of be brought on board to make this change? Right. So um, in terms of the total number of citizens, it's about 5,300 people. And Maltz is a township of about 95 square miles. So, you know, Maltz, the town itself, is comprised of 11 different villages. Uh, one of those villages is Maltz. It's the, the biggest of the towns. And, you know, it's, it's a pretty big area. So when you think about having a pesticide-free community that's that big, you know, then it starts to make a, a lot of sense ecologically. And you start to realize this is a small town, but this is a big move to ban all pesticides in a 95-square-mile area is pretty extraordinary. And I think of all the different ways that the states here in the United States are divided up, it's Pennsylvania has, I forget how many it is, it's 2,300 or 4,300 different townships that are all these kinds of small localized populations that all kind of come together under the banner of a particular name or area. And the way that we could use this movement in Maltz as a model for these small local communities. Right. And, you know, I think it, it translates to, um, again, it's not just about pesticides, it's also about direct democracy. And fracking, for example, you know, is another <laughs> issue in terms of this toxic trespass that I think is, is really important for us to think about. So the, the way the people of Maltz did it, it translates into a lot of different activist groups and communities and, and really provides some strategies, I think, for us to think about how we make change at the local level. And there are some ideas and concepts about that presented by Johannes that I'd like to close our conversation with. But before we get there, there are a couple of other little pieces that I'd like to touch on. And that once the banners were hung and everybody knew that this action needed to happen, what did it look like politically then for Uli to do this? Was it a matter then of direct action that a policy was crafted and then the community voted on it? Or was there a bigger piece of the political side to this movement? So Uli, you know, he's just an amazing person. And as a leader, as a mayor, he's, he's something uh, something of, uh, I, I guess, a real exception in the South Tyrol because he was willing to stand for his community and he was willing to stand up against the strongest of the political parties and against the, you know, the main economic powers of the region. And he just, he said repeatedly that the people are the sovereign, you know, and the people are the sovereign really carries a, a lot of weight in the direct democracy world. 
And, you know, I, I think he was exactly right that who are we going to be regulated by? You know, is it going to be, you know, in our case here in the U.S., the corporations and the politicians, or are we going to self-regulate? So Ulrich decided, along with the town council, that they would, in fact, have a referendum. And the referendum would be for a pesticide-free future for malts. It would be a binding referendum. And that referendum took place in August of 2014 into September. You know, and, and here's where I also admire the political process. They decided to have the polling open for two weeks. There were three different ways in which people could vote. The mayor and the town council were not allowed to speak about the vote during the polling period. And they just wanted to make darn sure that it was as tight a political process as it could be. And as it turned out, in September of 2014, uh, when the election results were announced, three-quarters of the population of the town opted for a pesticide-free future. And that, that sent shockwaves throughout the South Tyrol, but then also reverberated throughout the rest of Europe. And now, you know, I love seeing it hit the U.S., Australia, Japan, India. So, you know, the, the movement of one small town, you know, led by a very courageous mayor, suddenly it was something, you know, that, that really gave us new hope at the international level. That's really impressive for me because of my interaction with the folks who are doing like community environmental legal defense. And there are a lot of direct action organizations in the United States, in particular, as you mentioned, with fracking, who are pushing back against that and asking for more use of the precautionary principle to make sure these things are going to be safe. And just to know of this success in malts is really helpful for me having been involved in that because of all of my friends I know who have been caught up in some of this and just being shot down over and over and over again as they try to move forward. Yeah. And, you know, when you look at people who never expected to certainly not to be in the international limelight, but also never really saw themselves as political activists, you know, people who just made tremendous impact in this. I mean, you look at the veterinarian, the you know, Beatrice, who was a hairdresser and now is one of the first organic hairdressers in all of Italy. You know, people coming from very ordinary walks of life and stepping forward and, and making big changes. And certainly, you know, Johannes, the pharmacist who is elected as the spokesperson, Johannes uh, really has been critical in moving things forward. And, you know, really, when you think about it, who better to have to advocate for such an initiative than the town pharmacist, the chemist, the person who really knows that the dose makes the poison? So Johannes has been really extraordinary in all that he's done, and he's endured and is still enduring lawsuits, you know, threats to his, his body, to his life, to his family, desecrating his family's grave. These aren't easy steps that people take, you know, as ordinary citizens, but then they, they don this mantle of the community, you know, and they become empowered and they go beyond what they themselves ever thought they might do. And you just touched on one of the things that I wanted to ask because it was a concern was what kind of pushback had occurred in this process. And it sounds like there's been quite a bit of that just to Johannes, but I imagine there was also some against Uli and the other politicians in town, some of the farmers even pushing for this, just as anyone might oppose something. Right. You know, and, and it's interesting with Uli because before he was elected mayor, he didn't belong to a political party. He'd never really thought of kind of getting into politics. But he wanted to become mayor in order to help advance some of the, the goals of creating a more sustainable community that took care of all of its citizens in as many ways as possible. 
And so, you know, Uli has also been subjected to tremendous political pressures and being called on the carpet over and over again. And he just, you know, he's very calmly stood his ground all the way through that the people are the sovereign. That's why I'm here. And in his reelection campaign, he got the the highest number of or the highest percentage of votes of any mayor in all of South Tyrol, which is just really extraordinary. And I think speaks to to what he's done. But it's it's been hard. I think you know people were exhausted when this was all over, and you know, and and honestly, I think after the referendum, some of the main provocateurs really had to step back for a couple of months and just you know, kind of recuperate because they were under such political pressure. And and when you live in a small town, it's not always simple. And they've always had to deal directly with their neighbors and try to maintain good conversations. I say civil conversations and and try to find these points of common understanding. And that it's not always been easy in that regard. Being able to communicate across that void and know what it is that connects us rather than what divides us and being able to pull ourselves closer, even though we might be opposed to a particular idea that that opposition to a concept doesn't mean that at the end of the day that we need to be enemies just because of that one thing, because we're neighbors and members of our community. Exactly. You know, and it's been interesting talking to people after the fact and as they reflect back on it, you know, the the farmers themselves generally, and and many of the the people there say, you know, we're, we're not trying to control what any one farmer does on his or her lands. But it's when what that farmer does, when it starts to impact other people who are adjacent or nearby or other members of the community, then suddenly another concept has to kick into gear. And that concept is the precautionary principle and how we actually make sure that the burden of proof is on those who are producing the potential harm and not on the citizens themselves. And it's one of the things in some of the circles that I walk in, we have a lot of conversation about liberty and freedom, and that my right to swing my fist ends where your nose begins is kind of a a common reference to that. But when we look at the environment and things of that nature, I look at it that I don't care if someone smokes or uses pesticide or whatever, but if I'm in a car with somebody with my children, I don't want to be exposed to that because I don't consent to smoking. So it's like, how do we navigate that space as best as we can? That's when this notion of toxic trespass starts to kick in. And unfortunately, it's, it's not just the potential impact of a, you know, a given generation, even of our children, but it's also of their children and even their children's children. You know, the, what we're finding now scientifically you know, about the potential impact and, and sometimes likely impacts of pesticides it's not one generation that's being negatively impacted. The consequences go on. And so this notion of genotoxicity is something that's, that's very troublesome. And can you speak just a little bit about toxic trespass? You've mentioned that several times. I was just wondering if you could elaborate on it. We like to think that we're autonomous beings, that we live in an environment uh, which we control to a certain extent, or at least that there are certain substances that um, we're not going to expose ourselves to intentionally but the reality is, in a world laden with pesticides and, and other chemical toxins, that at this point in time, you know, we, we are inadvertently, in many cases, ingesting uh, various forms of chemical toxins. And that's where toxic trespass comes in, that suddenly there is no way of creating a barrier between ourselves and these chemicals that we don't want to have internalized. 
and it's particularly critical you know, for children and those in developmental stages. And again, with the genotoxicity of the possibility of having these things passed down from one generation to the next is really worrisome. And when people think about pesticides, what they typically think about are the active ingredients, which may only comprise, you know, one, two, or five percent of the pesticide itself. The rest of those are considered inert or inactive ingredients, and they're not even tested in many cases. In most cases, they're not tested. So suddenly you've got these chemical agents which are made to penetrate cell walls and in order for the pesticides to be effective. And so we've got these inactive, uh, supposedly <laughs> inactive ingredients, inert ingredients that we don't have a clue about them. And they actually, um, you know, they're opening up our bodies to these various toxins. So toxic trespass is a really important concept. And what you say there, I think of all the surfacants and other things that are included in the fluid for fracking. Mm -hmm. that we don't necessarily know about because they're, they're industrial secrets and what they might be doing to our waterways and in turn our food and the people who are downstream. Right. And if they're not tested, that, that's problematic enough. But then even, you know, if you're poisoned by one of these and you call poison control, they may or may not have access to the trade secrets, which, you know, are the, the really the framing of so many of these inactive ingredients, inert ingredients. I'm familiar from the industrial side of things, MSDS sheets that allow you to look up what the composition of something is and find out more about it, that those aren't necessarily readily available or something that you can get from every manufacturer. Right. And then when you think about the fact that all of these are combined and you've got all of the impacts of, of these different chemicals being combined you know, into cocktails then suddenly we really don't understand what the potential impacts are, not of the active ingredients. We don't know what the inactive or the inert ingredients are doing. And there's no way we'll ever figure out what all the synergies are between these different chemical compounds. So it's a pretty scary thing. And I think the people of malts found a path forward that makes a lot of sense. And I, I think when we're in an era of focusing on certain chemicals, that's important, but in the end, the, the real game changer is the elimination of, of all of these synthetic pesticides. And something that you spoke about in order to do this is, of course, we need to have tenacity and grit in order to be able to hold on and community engagement. But one of the things that I also feel that we need, which I love that you have in your book, is also a primer on how we can take action. And I was wondering if you could speak some about the five suggestions that Johannes created. Yeah, I think Johannes, as the spokesperson for the committee, really had to think hard about the strategies that they were taking. And, you know, he was thinking on his feet in a lot of cases, but in retrospect, one of the things that he provided me were these five things that he thinks any community could and should do if they face something like this. And the first one was to always provide factual and objective information, particularly about the health risk posed by pesticides. The second was to invite the world's best experts, be they coming from the realms of environment, medicine, toxicology, invite these world's best experts to give public lectures. And then, very importantly, number three, engage the best lawyers, because you're going to need them. <laughs> and then number four, which I, I think is something that's overlooked sometimes, is you know take the time to win over the local farmers to your cause. And finally, he notes that 
need to present a project that's focused on health, politics, social issues, ethics, and ecology. So although these are complex battles, I, I think what he did as a pharmacist, you know, in, in really prescribing these five different things, the principles that uh, activists need to consider in their communities, those are very important. And they certainly apply beyond just pesticides. I think it really is a, a manuscript in some ways for moving forward on any kinds of community action. And that's what I really liked about them is that even though I first read through it, in that context of Johannes as the spokesperson, as this particular work against pesticides is the universal nature of them and the way that we can extrapolate them out so that it can be about not only winning over our local farmers, but really anyone who might be a stakeholder in the situation. And that presenting factual information combined with your experts, it doesn't necessarily have to be a conversation that comes from an emotional place when you're sharing the objective information but then when it is about the positive side of things for health and politics and social issues, that it is then about the impacts that this will have that will improve the quality of the life and the environment for everyone involved. Exactly. And I, you know, the people of Maltz, I think they learned this along the way, but they were really savvy in trying to make sure they put forward all of these ideas. And by the time the referendum happened, They'd had just about two dozen different public forums, and some of those forums were to talk about visioning their community, what it might look like in the best of circumstances, and other forums were actually focused on, you know, having toxicologists come in and environmental biologists, and they were really, I think, very smart about this, and, you know, and it happened over a fairly short period of time, but that was less than two years in which they had these two dozen forums, so that really made a difference. And it all moved fairly quickly relative to some of the things that I've been engaged in, which is also inspiring to see that if we can bring people together and have this action involve so many levels of not only the community, but also the ways in which we share this information and get people involved, that it doesn't have to be a long, drawn-out process. Exactly. And that said, also realizing that um, getting to these these certain points uh, of, of success is really important. but the Malters also have had to stand their ground after the fact um, as well. So they did get to this point where the referendum was passed and the ordinance was, excuse me, the ordinances were put into place. But they also recognize that lawsuits and other things are going to continue. But they've got three quarters of the people behind them. And no matter what you do in the courts, you know, you can't knock down that fact. And I truly do find this an inspirational story for anyone who wants to do this kind of work, whether they're already involved in politics and policy or farming, or just someone who's a citizen who cares. Absolutely. I, you know, and I think we need these stories of hope, you know, maybe now more than ever. And we, local hope is <laughs> perhaps at this point more important than any kind of uh, hope at the national level or otherwise, because we, we do have to you know, grab control in benevolent ways of what we can within our own communities. Well, and I feel really fortunate that you took the time to write this book and put it out into the world so that people can read it and begin to take these kinds of actions wherever they live and whatever the issue may be. Well, thanks so much, Scott. I mean, it really has been my privilege, you know, especially to be able to work with the people of Maltz and assembling the story and trying to tell it and 
you know, we've also tried to do this by various forms of media as well as the book. So Douglas Gaten of the Lexicon of Sustainability has been, you know, stalwart's ally in all of this. And so we have a website uh, that will appear in just a couple of weeks, topplinggoliath.org, that folks can check out. And that will be through the Lexicon of Sustainability. So hope folks will, they can go there and see some of the images of the people of Maltz and get to know them a little better because they are an amazing group of people. Well, Philip, ever since I first heard you speak on an NPR interview years ago, I'd wanted to have a conversation with you because I love the way that you engage with these ideas and speak about them. And it's been a pleasure for me to talk to you today, and especially with the amount of time that you've given us as we've gone over what was originally allotted, just that we could continue this conversation and to be able to talk about all these ideas. Before we draw this to a close, though, I always like to leave an open space for any final thoughts that you might have. So is there anything you'd like to share with the listeners before we draw to a close? One of the privileges of my life is to be able to work mostly with young people, um, people who at this point in time, I think, face some of the most intense political crises, uh, certainly of my lifetime. And so for me, digging into the story of Maltz and finding out how a group of ordinary citizens took control of their own destiny in many ways, it is, I hope, a gift to my students, to my children, to my community. And I, I hope that it's something that reverberates across the world because we need these kinds of stories. But even more importantly, I think we need these kinds of citizens to stand up and to work together and to find a path forward to a new future that they themselves even didn't expect was possible. We all have a voice, and if we bring them together we can become a choir that cannot be ignored exactly and it's beautiful music when it happens well thank you for that philip and everything else today i really appreciate and feel honored for the opportunity to speak with you and that you would join me well thank you scott i really do appreciate it and you know thanks to you for all your work in the podcast and getting different voices out there it's those are really beacons of light for all of us and that was Philip Ackerman Leist. Find out more about him at greenmtn.edu and his book at chelseagreen.com. You'll of course find links to those in the show notes. What I liked about this conversation, besides finally getting to speak with Philip after years of wanting to, was hearing about all the ways that the community of Maltz got involved. We have individual farms and farm families, as well as the hairdresser and women of the community, and the important role that having an active, engaged mayor played in moving many of these ideas forward. Though we may not have all of these resources available to us wherever we live in the world, there are elements within the individual details and overall story that can help us to bring about the kind of change that we need in the face of things like fracking, the overspraying of herbicides and pesticides, excessive application of fertilizer, stream and waterway runoff, and really any of the host of issues that arise as citizens who care about our communities, ourselves, and the world. While working on putting this conversation with Philip together, I was reminded of some of the communities that I engage in online, where I hear from people about what it is that they're working on, what's important to them, in the landscape, or with the people around them, how some folks have decided to take on the war on drugs because of the way that that disproportionately affects certain communities. Or how in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, Benjamin Weiss and some of my other 
friends and colleagues associated with permaculture are protesting and standing up against pipelines. How as this comes out, we just had the March for Our Lives and teenagers and their families taking to the streets and their opposition to gun violence and school shootings and looking for solutions. And in each of those, how we decide what our level of engagement is. And there are many different things that we can do to affect change, from personal lifestyle choices, boycotts, protesting, or getting involved. And looking to the future of permaculture and what it's going to take to really create the world that we want to live in, that it's going to take people like Uli, or you, or me, if we're so-called, to get involved. Maybe not to become a politician, but certainly to do something more than just vote. If you have any thoughts on this and what you're doing, I'd love to hear about it. I want to continue having conversations about getting politically engaged and have some other folks on the docket so that we can carry on this conversation. But if after listening to Philip and what we spoke about today regarding malt and a precautionary tale, leave a comment in the show notes or get in touch. Email show at thepermaculturepodcast.com, call 717-827-6266, or write The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. From here, the next interview is with Amy Strauss to discuss how to grow in small spaces and work with our neighbors. That pulls from her experiences at 10th Acre Farm and writing her book, The Suburban Micro Farm. Modern Solutions for Busy People. Until then, spend each day pushing back against the forces that destroy the world you want to see, and take care of Earth, yourself, and each other.